The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC. Welcome to those of you joining online. We have a lot to do today, a um, lot to get through, uh, but I don't uh, want to uh, miss an opportunity. Um, Molly, come on up here. <laughs> if you disrupt service, you get to come up to service. Come on up. Come on up. Molly, this is uh, Molly gets to be in service with us today. She's got somebody downstairs um, working. Yeah. You leave your mask on when you're up here by me. I don't want to get your COVID. <laughs> so it's Molly's birthday. All right. So, so, so today, those of you online, join us. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Molly. Happy birthday to you. Yay. Okay. Here, here we go. Here we go. Stephanie Barrett is awesome. She said, all my kids' ministry kids with flowers to deliver to me. It okay. was amazing. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Molly, for all you do. And she certainly could use your help down in the kids' ministry. We appreciate all she does for the Lord and the church here at OPCC. If you have your Bibles, turn to Zechariah chapter 6, chapter, uh, Zechariah chapter 6. <clears throat> We're going to jump down in there real quick and then go and uh, get ready to win us an AFC championship. Amen? Amen? All right. And so today we look at the last night vision that Zechariah has, and then it contains an oracle after the vision, and there is a messianic prophecy that we're going to look at. And so all the way up to this point, like Zacharias had all of these visions in one night. And then the book sort of shifts and the rest of the book is lit, written at a little later time period. And so we'll begin to dive in and investigate some of the things that the Lord was teaching through the prophet Zechariah. But here's the deal, is that five centuries before the church was born. Now just think about that. Okay, so like how old is our country? Two and a half centuries, something like that. Twice as long as America has been around. Five centuries before the church was born, we learn how the church is to be built, how it would be built, and what should motivate and create a sense of urgency in, me, in each of us. And so that just blows me away, is that 500 years before Jesus would even mention this whole idea of a church, we find how it's going to happen through this prophet and Zechariah. And so as we look, we're going to first of all look at the first eight verses that contain the vision. And then I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a, a takeaway there. And then we will jump back into the remaining verses. And I'm going to give you some key phrases to hone in on. Uh, and we're going to look at some other scripture that really makes this come to light. And I, I hope it's as encouraging to you as it has been to me. But let's look at the first eight verses. So Zechariah is in this vision state. He's receiving this vision from the Lord. And he says, I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. And the first chariot had red horses, the second black, third white, and the fourth dappled, all of them powerful. And I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered me, These are the four spirits of heaven. 
going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horses is going toward the north country. The one with the white horses, the NIV says, toward the west. Most translations will say that it followed. Some believe it went northwest, but it, it followed the ones that went to the north. And the one with the dappled horses toward the south. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. Then he called to me, look, those going toward the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. What in the world is going on with these horses and these chariots? Well, first of all, you have to understand it really is all about what's happening in the north. And I'll explain that here in a moment. But your first takeaway for today is this. The Lord owns TikTok, okay? Like he owns TikTok. This is a real popular app, man. People are going around sharing all these videos, spending all their time, like you can see how many followers you can get, and uh, really start to generate some revenue in your life if you're effective at it. And so what I want you to know today that um, what we find written uh, 500 years before Christ is that the Lord owns TikTok. The setting is a heavenly council on a cosmic mountain. We see a cosmic mountain scene, a heavenly council that's going on. And we know that probably it occurs at sunrise. The mountains are spoken of to be of bronze. And bronze is always indicative of very a powerful, uh, uh, obviously metal in that age was extremely important. And, and so it gives the idea that this is an impenetrable place. It is the abode of God. And they're reflecting the sun Okay, that's how we know it's in the morning. They have this appearance of bronze and shining. And what that tells us is that it occurs at sunlight, and it's a symbol of, or a symbol of hope, and a new day is dawning. When we started um, early in chapter 1, we see that Jesus is down in the ravine, the man in the myrtles. But when we end the vision, now we see that there he's up in the mountains. This vision is going on up in the mountains. That first vision appeared to be more, uh, uh, had uh, uh, language that indicated that it was an evening. Okay, that it was a dime of darkness, but now a new day is dawning is what is taking place in this symbology, in this apocalyptic literature. Chariots um, were vehicles used in wartime. They were made for speed to carry a warrior, a driver and a warrior, and they would, they would certainly increase your chances of being victorious if you had chariots, and that's why the armies numbered how many chariots they had. But in this heavenly vision, the chariots are carrying God's angels, God's judgment throughout the earth. And so north, as we have established during this series um, and this teaching in Zechariah, north is always um, a place of dominant powers, okay? And the reason that is is because the, the, the surrounding nations that would invade Jerusalem would always come from the north. And so when in this imagery that God uses in this literature, like when he, he, he depicts places in the north, it's always a place of world-dominant power. And so we see that in the last part in verse 8, that it says, Then he called to me, look, those going toward the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. Okay, so what we find here is that rest 
means that there's total victory. The Spirit of God is at rest now. And so that's what this vision is about. Because remember we learned when we were talking about um, how the, there was a basket, and inside the basket was wickedness. And then that lead cover was placed on that wickedness, and it was carried off to the north, to the city of Shinar, Babylon. And it was waiting for a place to be prepared for it, and then it would be set in its abode forever to be away from God. And so there again, as we see that imagery of what's happening in the, in the north. And so the north represents dominant world powers. And so what this is teaching us is that the affairs of nations are under God's directions, not man's. Even in the United States of America, as we look at all that's going on, and it, it can be very frustrating to us at times, we have to be reminded that, that God is sovereign, and he, he governs and controls nations. He always has and he always will. And so sometimes nations will be used to uh, accomplish really evil things, but God is still in control of what's happening and what that nation can establish and can and cannot do. And this is the very thing that makes prophecy possible and miraculous, is that, is that we see that man looks like he's in control, but God says something hundreds of years before it happens, and then there's a nation that it doesn't matter how hard they try to make something happen that's not going to, that, 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 that doesn't uh, appear like it's going to happen as it was prophesied. God is always in control, and it comes to be exactly as God has prophesied it. And so what does that tell us? Well, it tells us this is a picture of the day of the Lord. Okay, so the day of the Lord, and when we think of the day of the Lord, this, this picture is woven throughout Scripture starting in Genesis. And as we get to Revelation, it is intensified. So when we start and the books are organized, not necessarily chronologically, they're organized in, in ways that um, are, are sort of match the type of literature they are, but we do have Genesis as the beginning and Revelation is definitely the end. And we see the day of the Lord in the very beginning of the creation story. Whenever sin happened, God said uh, as, uh, to the enemy, he said, you shall uh, bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Okay? The, the head has not been crushed yet. Okay? And spiritually it has. So the enemy can have no power over us when we're walking in the power and demonstration of the Spirit. But ultimately, the enemy is still released and wreaking havoc on the world and leading people astray. But ultimately, on that day, that will cease. And that's what that basket is about. That's carried away to the north. And that's what um, the book of Revelation is about. And so Zechariah, in many ways, is sort of the Old Testament book of Revelation. And so what we see is that... Um, uh, a prophecy can take place because of this whole idea of the day of the Lord, that it is coming. And so we see that, that as we go through the New Testament, what did Jesus do? He talked about the day of the Lord. We have the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, where he begins to teach, and he's t teaching about all of this stuff that is to happen out in the future. And this was prior to him being um, crucified, and, and people didn't really get it. But after he was crucified and rose from the dead, it started to make a lot more sense. And then the apostles, through the writings of uh, uh, the, the epistles, and um, you know, from Romans on through to the book of Revelation, then we have this idea of the day of the Lord like really developed. Now, if you study the New Testament, you'll see that one of the things the apostles did 
early in the church is they searched the scriptures and they studied the prophets. And I believe that where they spend a lot of their time is in these minor prophets. Because we see that a lot of the things that they write in the epistles is an explanation, really, and a commentary of how the church is fulfilling the things that these prophets said. And so the, here's, here's what we know when we think of the day of the Lord and this, um, this, this, this heavenly council and this vision. And God's saying um, to uh, the, the, the chariots that were straining man. What does that mean? It means like, like a horse or, or, or a dog that you have on a leash or a horse reined up. Man, they're, they're wanting to go. They're straining to go. They're being held back. But as soon as God says, go, they go. And right after they go, we have rest. Okay? So that means that this is moving toward the day of the Lord. And we're all moving toward that climactic event out in the future that is, is coming. And you say, well, when is it coming? I don't know. I just know that it's coming. And I know this. We are closer today than we were yesterday. And each day that passes, we get closer and closer. But ultimately, it is determined, I think, by, uh, and we'll see this in, in the message today, it is determined when the work is done. And it's time for the lead cover in that previous vision for it to be dropped on the basket. And no one else is coming out of that basket of unbelief. And wickedness is pushed down because they have rejected the Son of God for the Savior of the world. And that lead cover is placed and carried away and the day of the Lord will come and there will be rest in the land. And so what does that tell us? The clock is ticking. The chariots will come when the work is complete. And so tick, tock, tick, tock. I don't know if it'll end on the tick or the talk, but when he says go and the angels of the Lord are released, then that's when it'll happen. And so we look at that and we go, man, God is in control of everything that is happening in the universe. And so this is the vision that Zechariah has, man, and it's sort of overwhelming. It's a little nerve-wracking. It's a little bit like, whoa, man, I want to be ready for the day of the Lord. And so as we look now at the oracle that is given, it says, the word of the Lord came to me. That's how verse 9 begins. Then there's an explanation of what is happening in the midst of the tick and the talk, which is time. And so time has been started by God. God is involved in the midst of time. God is eternal. He is before time. He is the alpha. He is the omega. He is after time. So the tick and the talk will happen until God says it is over. And then, then we are in a, a, a state where time is no longer measured. We're no longer living in the dimension of time. We're living in the dimension of eternity because the cosmic plan and, the, and the, the heart of God has been fulfilled. And all that he has prophesied in the Bible has come to pass and it is over. And we're living, it, it is over as in the sense of time. And we are ushered into this, the dimension of eternity. And, and so we are eternal beings. And as soon as we are born and we come to be as souls, we're never going away. Like there's no such thing as annihilation. It, when, when God says after that last tick or that last talk and time is no more, the people that are a part of that, 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 uh, that basket of wickedness because they have rejected the plan of God and they have rejected the good news of the gospel... They are not annihilated. There is an abode for them. 
That is clearly taught in the previous vision that we learned about, and it's taught throughout the New Testament. And so then those who are, are, are part of the plan of God, and they are part of um, reconciling and making peace with God and walking in fellowship with Him because they have received Christ for, for, for forgiveness of sins, then there is an abode for them. That's why Jesus said, I go away to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming back. And so that's what this whole thing of life is about. And that's why it is so important for us to be in the Word and to understand and be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us and say to us so that we're walking in ways that we're always doing the work of the Lord. Because when the work is complete, then the, the chariots will be released and the new day will dawn. And so we go on now to this um, second part of the oracle, and this is what it says, and this is what is going to be happening during the dimension of time. The word of the Lord came to me. Take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Now, some time has passed. Remember, there were 50,000, approximately 50,000 people who left Babylonian captivity that were released by the power of God, not because some army um, liberated them, but God just moved on the heart of the king there. And he issued a decree, and he let them go. And he said, if some of you want to go back and rebuild that, that city, go back and worship your God. And 50,000 of them went back, but a lot of them stayed. But then on this particular time, when they're, the remnant is back in Jerusalem, they're back rebuilding the temple, then God says, he gives a word to Zechariah to communicate to the leadership that there are three guys that have come from Babylon, and they have gold, and I want you to go to uh, Josiah's house and receive from them. And so he says, go the same day to the house of Josiah, of the son of Zephaniah, take the silver and gold and make a crown. Now this is important that this word crown here is, uh, is in the plural, okay? So it should be crowns. And we know that even because silver and gold are collected. So there's more than one crown. And it could be a crown of silver and a crown of gold that is fashioned and the two are placed together um, to make uh, one crown. But he says, take the silver, take the gold, and go make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest. Well, this is strange because the high priest doesn't wear a crown. He wears a turban. And so this is a really odd thing. The king was the one that wore the crown. And he says, set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. And this is what he says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. That's weird. He's a priest on a throne, not a king on a throne. And there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given. So that crown they made, he says, the crown will be given um, to Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah. And Hen is just another name for Josiah. And he says, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. So put it on the priest, but don't leave it on the priest. After you do this, then I want you to take the crown and put it in the temple of the Lord so that the people will see it and always remember this word. And so he says, after that, those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord. 
and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. So you will know that this is true, that this prophetic word is true as these people start to come and they help you build the temple. And he says, this will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. Okay, so here we have one of the most mes- remarkable messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Like, this is about Jesus. This is 500 years before Jesus would come to the planet. And it says what Jesus will do, what he will be like. And there are five key phrases that teach us how the church is built and that, that, that are really encouraging to us. So I'm going to give them to you um, one at a time here. And the first one is this. It is the phrase here in the text that I read from in the NIV, here is the man. Okay, in the original Hebrew, it reads, behold the man. It is an unusual phrase. It's not something that we find all over the Bible. It's not something that you find repetitively. It's, it's like it, these words are chosen specifically for a specific reason. And so what we find is it's the very words Pilate used to present the beaten Christ to, to the Jerusalem people. Okay, so when you, what we're going to do now is I want you to go to John chapter 19. We're going to be doing some back and forth today. So go to John chapter 19, and I'm going to read this and let it do the teaching, okay? And so here he says, God says to Zechariah um, to go do this, and, and he says, he starts it by saying, here is the man, or behold the man. Now watch this. Then Pilate took Jesus... And he had him flogged. That's beaten. Like beaten really, really bad. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, um, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and he said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the, uh, the, the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. So he brings Jesus out in front of the Jerusalem people and he basically says, behold the man. Pilate is not a Jew. Pilate is a Roman. Okay, He doesn't even know anything about this prophecy. And again we see that the government is always in control by God. And God will use people however he wants to accomplish what he said that he is going to do. And so it says, as soon as the chief priests um, and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. It's like, there's no reason to crucify this man. Now, now you gotta understand this. This is the guy in control. This is like the guy who Rome placed in this region to control this area. And and he's trying to lead the people. He has the authority to make these decisions. And he says, I don't find any reason to do this. And so they said, the Jews insisted, we have a law. And according to the law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. What? So now we're seeing like, we're seeing him start to fit some of the stuff that was prophesied about him in Zechariah. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. And he said, where do you come from? And he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. Now watch this. 
don't you realize I have power either to free or to crucify you? He said, I got the power, man, to let you go. And this is what Jesus says. He answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. What's he saying? I control this. My father is the one who determines what kind of power you have. You don't have any power unless it's given to you from heaven. So we see even in the first part of the vision, it's being manifested right here. And it even intensifies. And so he says, therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Watch what Pilate tries to do. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. And it was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. And he says, here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And so what do we see here? We see, first of all, Pilate uses the same phrase, that was prophesied to Zechariah and written five centuries before to say, behold the man. Then, um, then uh, uh, Pilate does everything that he possibly can do to try to release Jesus and not have him crucified. And he can't get it done. Why? Because God control, controls the, and governs all nations. It doesn't matter what Pilate wanted to do. Jesus was going to be crucified, and it wasn't going to be because the Pharisees wanted him crucified. It wasn't going to be because the people didn't recognize he was the Messiah. It was because God the Father knew that all humanity was sinful and somebody needed to die in their stead. And whoever was going to die had to be perfect. They had to be able to wipe away all sin. And so hell wasn't going to keep Jesus from being crucified. He came to die. Nothing was going to stop that. And so that's the first thing we see is, behold the man. Now, the difference between the two visions, or the, 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 the vision of Zechariah and the instance of Jesus saying, when, when, when Pilate says, behold the man, and Zechariah says, behold the man, is the difference is that with Pilate, it was the humiliated Christ, but with Zechariah, it is the triumphant Christ. It is the Christ that will return to the planet as he said he would after he rose from the dead. Okay, so that's the first thing we have to take away. Here's the second one. The branch will branch out. He says, here is the man, and what is his name? The branch, and he will branch out from this place. Okay, now, so what this means is that he would have an insignificant beginning, but would branch out to dominate the world. That's what's being said here. The branch that will branch out. He will start from an insignificance. Jesus was born as a baby in the insignificant town of Bethlehem. He was from, later he moved to the place of Nazareth. He was a carpenter, which meant that he was not in the upper echelon of society. He just just, uh, did a a normal trade that uh, his family was involved in. When Philip went to Nathanael and said, we think we found the Messiah, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Nathanael said, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? He was insignificant. As he started out, and, and we know that he was not only um, viewed insignificant, like he, Jesus, what you have to understand during the time of Jesus, Jesus wasn't famous like he is right now. He was only known in this region. 
Okay, so he had not traveled all over the world about him. This is why Jesus says, you will do greater things than I did after I'm gone when the Holy Spirit comes. It's because you will be the ones who branch out to dominate the world. And so then we know he is crucified and, and, and he is seen as cursed because anybody who's hung on a tree, the Bible and the lost taught, is cursed. And so they saw him as cursed. They were trying to totally discredit his reputation, the, the Jewish leadership was at the time, as they were trying to totally make him look like a fraud. That's why they wanted him crucified, because then they knew that all the people would look at him and go, man, anybody who's hung on a tree is cursed. But what they didn't realize is that he would take on the curse that was meant for us, and it was necessary. And he started out of being in a place of insignificance. But then they put him in the grave, and three days later, he rose from the dead. Then all of his followers started saying, we encountered Jesus on the street. And then there were more than 500 witnesses documented that there were witnesses who claimed that they interacted with the real, physical, resurrected Jesus Christ. You don't need to go to the Bible to learn that. Just go to the world book. Uh, encyclopedia. Go, go somewhere and read what the early followers thought about Christ. They thought he went from a d guy who was beaten and humiliated to all of a sudden they, they, start, they changed everything about themselves and they started following him and they were even willing to die. They would not recant what they know that they had believed. Okay, And so he started branching out. And then we know that in the, uh, 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 in the in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, when they were all in the upper room and they were gathered there praying, the Holy Spirit fell on them and they went out and they started preaching in the streets and people were hearing them in their other languages and all of a sudden 3,000 people were born and the branch just went. <laughs> and then it, it continued to branch out in Jerusalem, but it wasn't going any further than Jerusalem. And, and, and we know that in this text that those are far off will come and help too. What is that a reference to? It is a reference to the Gentiles, people who are not Jewish. And so what happens is there's one guy, his name is Stephen, and he is a man who is full of the Holy Spirit. And he is martyred for, 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 for preaching a sermon to the Jewish le uh, leadership. They stone him. And he says, look, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And they kill him on the spot. They, they pelt him with rocks and he dies. And then all of a sudden, all of these people who were in Jerusalem that were believers, they got nervous. They got nervous, man, they're going to start killing us. And you know what they did? They branched out. And within a few years, within a few years of the time of the death of Christ, Christianity traveled the globe. And it's still traveling today. It's branching out. See, we are part of the branching out. And this is so important for us to understand is that um, he will dominate the world. And how will he dominate? Well, this is the next phrase I want to share with you. He will build the temple. It says that he will branch out from his place and he will build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple. He repeats it two times. Okay, so that means that it's, this is really, really important. And so this is not Zerubbabel's temple that was being built at that time because it was nearing completion. This was the temple of the Messiah. Now I direct you to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. All right, <laughs> this is good. And so there were people, man, they were, get, they were starting to come to the Lord. And some of them came to the Lord under the uh, teachings of an evangelist by the name of Apollos. And Apollos could wax eloquent, man. And he was, he, was, he was used of the Lord. And so a lot of people came to know the Lord under him. And then there were a lot of people that were coming to know the Lord under the Apostle Paul's teaching. 
And so some people were saying, I choose Apollos. And some people were saying, I choose Paul. It's kind of like saying, well, I go to the Catholic Church. Or some people say, I go to uh, Church of the Resurrection. Or I go to God said, like, that doesn't matter. You know what matters? is one thing is what God is doing. But first of all is, is there the teaching of the word happening? And, this, and so in this division, in this place of this division going on, there are people saying, well, I belong to this and I belong to that. Paul writes this, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. I'm starting in verse five. And he says, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. That means every one of us has a task. He said, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God made it grow. If God isn't making it grow, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter what's happening. It doesn't matter how many people. It doesn't matter how many works are done. If God isn't making something grow, it does not matter. And that is so important to church growth. So neither he who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. That's all of us. He says we have one purpose. And each will be rewarded according to his own labor. This is to the believer that this is written. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. What is the foundation? We know it is Christ. And he says, and someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ, who is referred to as the cornerstone. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, or costly stones, that's kind of interesting that he says, go take the gold and silver from Heldai and all these other fellas. He says, anyone who uses that kind of stuff, um, or wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day, what? The day. That's the day of the Lord. The day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. And some folks may make it in just smoking as they go. Right? I don't want to go in that way. Only a fool would know that truth right there and say, I'm all right with that. I'm all right with getting in when the Lord has he's warned me clearly about the rewards that are coming to me if I'm laboring in the kingdom. And then we get this passage that I'm sure you've heard. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. And so what do we see here? We see that um, the building is, is, is like it's us. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And so here we're a local fellowship, a local body of believers. And as somebody comes into the kingdom and they receive Christ, they become a living stone, Peter says. They become a, a person who is part of the temple of God. And so when we gather together in a local fellowship like this, then all we're saying is, I'm a living stone that is part of the building of God. And I'm going to be fitted together and joined together with all of these other living stones. And we are going to be raised up as the temple of God. And ultimately on that day, everybody throughout history who has become a living stone is part of the temple of God. And they are the ones that when that day happens and the chariots are released and time is no more, the last tick and the last talk, then everybody who is a living stone is part of the temple of God. 
And that's what we're moving towards. So that's why it is so important to be a part of the church, okay? And so we participate in that. And when the work is done, here we get our next phrase. He will be a priest on his throne. A priest clothed in majesty. And it says he will sit and he will rule. And he is sitting because the work of atonement is done. He is standing when Stephen gets the vision next to the Father. But when the work is done and the last tick happens and the last talk is measured, then the priest will be crowned and he will sit on his throne. He will assume his rule of the church and the world forever on that day. So this, that day is so very important because when I start to understand, oh, jeez, man, there's a day coming out there. Then I start wondering, wondering about how I'm living my life in preparation for that day because the only time that you get to prepare for that life is during the tick and the talk that is measured from your birthday to your death day. And that determines how you prepare for when that day comes. Because when that day comes, all of the living stones will be rewarded according to their labor that they participated in with the master builder, which is God. And we labor together and we serve together. And on that day, we will be rewarded for the work that we have accomplished. And so when the work is done, the high priest or the priest will sit on his throne and assume the rule. And the result is the last phrase there will be harmony between the two. Now, what in the world is that about? Well, it would, it would seem on the surface, and we've learned about this, it would seem, just a real quick reading, that it would be harmony between the office of the king and the office of the high priest. But there's always been harmony between that. Now, we learned a couple of weeks ago that Jesus would merge and he would fulfill the role of all three, he would be the first person that filled all three roles um, as, great, as the prophet, priest, and king. But this is different. This says there will be harmony between um, the two. And so there's always been harmony. Harmony, what is harmony? Harmony is when Sean's singing and I sing at a different note and I harmonize. So harmony never happens for me, right? But that's what harmony is. It's like there's harmony between the two. And so there's always been harmony between the king and the high priest. This is referring to there will be harmony between God and sinners. And so that's what this is all about, the branch will come, and when he sits on his throne, ultimately there will be harmony, and the only way to harmonize with him is through the cross of Christ, where he took on your curse, and you can receive forgiveness of your sins. And so that brings us to to the big idea, and it is this. Crown Jesus with obedience, and the blessing will come. Now where is that coming from? Look at verse 15. It says, Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. Those far away will come 
to help build the temple. That's what these guys bringing the gold and silver to fashion the crown that would be placed in the temple that would be a memorial about all of this truth and a reminder to them was about. So what is God saying to us in that? God is saying to us that the way you grow a church as you get people to focus on obedience to Christ because consistent obedience produces consistent blessing. Inconsistent obedience produces inconsistent blessing. But when all of us get consistent as living stones of the Lord and we start walking in the obedience that Christ has called us to, then all of a sudden people from far away start showing up with resources. And so it's not so much about um, that we are just doing inviting, which is important, and we're trying to reach out to people. You will see people, the Lord will just bring people to this place, not because I do a good job of preaching, but because you do a good job of listening and obeying the Lord. What good would it do to bring people from far away into a place if they're going to hear a, a, a teaching of the, of the truth of the Word of God? But all the people that are listening are not walking in obedience. It'd be like placing them in a cesspool. But man, when you get a group of people who are walking in obedience, and you get a minister who's teaching, and, and people who are believing in the Word of God, and they're recognizing where the Word is calling them to obey, and they're stepping into that obedience, then all of a sudden, man, God looks down, and He's like, all right, boys, let the golden oil flow on this place, because there are living stones everywhere. And that's why I keep challenging you to make disciples that make disciples. Because one thing that I can point you to over and over, emphatically, without a doubt, Jesus said, one thing you are to do, go make disciples and teach them everything I've taught you. And so every time we have a disciple maker that says, man, I'll walk that obedience out, then the floodgates of blessing can fall on this place and the Lord can bring more from far away. People who want to know the Lord, they haven't found him yet. And all of a sudden, they'll just walk through the building. I've had people who have come to the, the last ministry that I was leading. They were totally high on meth, man. And they didn't even know why they walked in the doors of our church and got sober on that day. Because the Lord brought them in. Why? Because we were walking in obedience. And, and the Lord knew, man, bring those far away so that the two can be reconciled. The sinner can be reconciled with me. He can walk in freedom. And before that lead cover is placed on that basket and carried away to its abode, man, that person is saved. And so while we look at the world and we go, why does God tolerate to wickedness? He's being patient so that people would not perish and more people's fate is not determined forever and ever and ever. And so, man, like we look at that and we go, wow. And, 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 and we close, like, I, I'm not going to read all of this passage, but in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. Like, don't you want to put something on the king's head? Like, there are many crowns. And I believe that it is us walking in obedience and crowning him as king in our lives. 
And so that's, man, that's what it's so, like that, that's what the church is about. The church is about people understanding how to hear the voice of the Lord by sitting in the word and recognizing this is not a feeling I'm having. Here's truth that I can apply it to and go, man, God is calling me to walk in this obedience right here. And I'm going to step into it because I believe the blessing is going to flow. See, there are too many people in today's modern church that want the blessing of God without walking in obedience. And it ain't common. It ain't common. The only way to get the blessing of God is to walk in obedience. And the more we walk in obedience, the greater our freedom. And that's why we're committed to discipleship. And so here's the deal, man, is I would encourage you. I would encourage you, men, to think through all of this. And I would encourage you to think about why discipleship is so important. And think about whether or not you should be resisting it. Because it's hard. Like, I know it's hard. I know because I'm trying to lead people to do it. Like, I'm trying to lead them to be a church that really does what Jesus said to do. And if I wasn't doing that, we could rely on my teaching, we could rely on this guy's worship, and we could probably fill this place up. But when the king comes, man, I want a crown to put on his head. And the only way to get that is for people to walk in obedience. And I'm not the only one that should be walking in obedience and hearing the voice of the Lord. It should be all of us, and we should be branching out and dominating the world so that when the last tick ticks and the last talk talks, we are ready for the day of the Lord. All right? And so here's, here's what I want to do, like, in celebration today. Like, if you, you need to make a decision for the Lord, like, you, you could just put something, like, in the offering plate or tell me on the way out or email me, jimmy at overlandpark.cc, and I will help you, okay? I will help you or someone will help you. But today, like, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited because sometimes when you start this whole discipleship thing, you wonder, what am I doing? Am I wasting time? But then you sit with some men and you start asking them, okay, tell me about this. And you begin to recognize as you're conducting an interview with them, man, this stuff is in them. It is in them. They are men of the Lord or women of the Lord who are ready to walk out their obedience in Christ and go and make disciples that make disciples. And so today is a celebration to head OPCC because we got three disciple makers to commission for the Lord and release them on behalf of the body to go and make disciples that make disciples, man. And so I'm going to ask Peter and Mike and, and, and uh, Chris to come up. And then, and then I'm going to ask all the disciple makers who've been released to make disciples. I want you to come up. You guys come right up here in the middle. Right here. These men are listening to the Lord. They're following him. Jason, Molly, like if you've been released, you're making disciples. Come, 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 come. I know some, we have a lot um, that aren't here or are downstairs. We're going to lay hands on these guys. Yeah, Corey. Sean, you keep playing and pray while you're playing. If, you, if you're like, man, I'm hungry for some discipleship, talk to these guys on the way out. We got some ladies that are on deck coming out soon. But let's pray for these guys and ask the Lord um, to help them in their ministry. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for Peter. I thank you for his heart, Lord. I thank you for his commitment to you. I thank you for the way he's grown. I thank you for the way, Lord, he will eat your word. He will listen to your voice as you take that word and penetrate his heart. And you prompt him to walk out obedience in his life. Thank you for letting me walk with him. 
Thank you, Lord, for his faithfulness, his desire to be fruitful. And I pray for him as a disciple maker at OPCC that you would bless him, Lord. You would bless him with men who are ready to to walk out their obedience, and you would help them, Lord, to become the living stones that you desire for them to be. I thank you for Mike, Lord, and his commitment, Lord, to you. I thank you for the growth and the movement I've seen in his life. I thank you for his faithfulness and for his family, and I pray for your blessing upon his leadership as he goes forth, Lord, to make disciples and to teach them um, all that you have shown us in your word. And I thank you for Chris, Lord, and how you've been moving in his life. I pray for your blessing upon him, Lord. I thank you that he has a desire to serve you, a heart, Lord, to listen to you. I thank you, Lord, that he knows how to um, sit in your word. And I'm reminded of the first time, Lord, I met with him at Jersey Boys. And he's like, man, I just want to know how to lead well. And I said, bro, I've been praying for people like you. And Lord, now he's leading, Lord. He's, he's, he's wrestling with you about how you want to use him in the rest of his life. And I thank you for that. So I thank you for these disciple makers, Lord. And I haven't laid hands on them and and not taken it seriously, Lord. But I lay hands on them today, Lord, and I pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and release them upon the world as ministers of the gospel to go and make disciples that make disciples. We love you. We thank you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. And amen. Bless you guys, man. God bless you guys. I'm going to let Sean play us out in, a, in, in some celebration if you'd like to come and pray or pray where you're at, but however you feel led. And uh, all together, we go and be victorious for our chiefs. Amen. amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.